street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. We should probably take care of the introductions then. My name is Anthony Magnabosco, and I'm an atheist. So this is an atheist class, from my understanding. And um, I'm not sure, is it like an entry-level class to atheism? No, it's like more of an advanced one. I'm getting like shrugs and nods and stuff. <laughs> Are you allowed to talk back? How does that work? Yeah, we can, yeah, we can Oh, okay. It. Okay. A fine institution, part of the Oregon system. See, I can't tell if you're being sarcastic or not. Well, <laughs> so tell us about yourself. Um, uh, so the, I told you the students are, are using the manual for creating an atheist. Um, they're not doing the Atheist app because of the Android issues, but hmm. tell us about yourself. Well, uh, my name is Anthony, and I've been, I, I guess, probably like a skeptic or an atheist most of my life, but I was raised in a Catholic household. Now, I've talked to enough Christians who will hear that and say, ah, that completely makes sense that you're an atheist now because the Catholics don't have the truth or something. But the reasons that the Catholics would give for thinking that God was real is pretty much the same reasons that anyone who thinks that there's a higher power usually give. There's usually much, not much distinction between the reasons. But um, I was always kind of skeptical, but I was the oldest of four in my family. And I think that alarmed my parents a little bit. I think they were worried that this impressionable older sibling could skew the other believers. So we didn't really talk about my doubts, my skepticism. I was always just so, sort of told, go along with it. Don't question. And I, I did. Uh, but that probably led to my angry atheist phase when I finally moved out of the house and got married, started having kids. And then started identifying as an atheist. Like, I don't believe that there's any higher power, so I'm an atheist. And then what I did is, and maybe some of you can relate if you've gone through this, uh, I kind of lashed out at the, at the people in my life who taught me this stuff. Because I, now in retrospect, I realized that their intentions were good, that they thought that they were teaching me the truth, but I felt like I was being deceived and lied to. And I lashed out at them by arguing with them and telling them that they were stupid and giving them facts to show that they were wrong. Which if you've even, if you've delved a little bit into Peter's first or second book, you'll probably realize or recognize that that could be problematic. Usually the defenses go up, people will believe what they believe even more, and they'll feel even more pity for this poor atheist who just doesn't have the truth, you know? So Peter's book was actually influential in, in helping me deal with my angry atheist part in my brain and having more productive conversations with people about God. So that's really how I started getting into this whole atheism thing. I think I was in the right place at the right time. I, I discovered Pete's book right at the time that I was thinking about getting into doing some sort of activism or, or something along those lines. So this kind of just fell on my lap, to be honest. And I've been trying to take Peter's approach and implement it in real conversations since 2013. Uh, so that's been really fun. And Pete has been so accessible. I remember Pete very early on, like messaging me on Twitter. Like I would tag him on videos that I would upload and say, hey, I had this great conversation where I was using your approach. What do you think? And then he just kind of like quickly reply back, like try this or don't do that. So he was giving me feedback to get better at it. And I think I have gotten better at it. Oh, and, amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's blown up. How many, so part of the, um, 
the assignments they have is to watch the videos that you sent me a while ago. And I'm sure that playlist is updated. So you, so basically for a few people who just joined late, um, you use the method. It's kind of like, um, a, a really augmented Socratic method of talking to people about their deepest health beliefs. Um, and you, 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 you're, have a YouTube channel, Anthony Magna Bosco, and a lot of the conversations you post to Twitter as well. And you've had, and I don't even know how many conversations you've had about this. Most of God, faith, et cetera, deeply held beliefs. I know this is a huge question. They could probably take an hour, but could you summarize some of the things that you've learned from those conversations? Damn. I've learned a lot. One of the surprising things that I learned is that maybe this isn't so surprising, but Mainly the reasons that people give for thinking that God is real are not very good reasons. They're not even well thought out. Now, sometimes you encounter somebody who is a believer and they have really well thought out reasons, but even the well thought out reasons when you explore them don't seem to hold up to scrutiny. So I was, um, I was almost like disappointed that there's this belief that's, that's influencing a large percentage of our culture that can't be backed up, but it's, it's, it's so pernicious. It's, it's everywhere almost, maybe not so much like in, in Oregon, maybe, but if you lived in Texas or something nationwide, this is a real big thing. So that was one thing that I learned is that the reason that people are giving for these beliefs are not sufficient in their own view, not just to me, but to their own standard doesn't hold up. But they've never almost almost hardly ever thought about it or considered that they could be wrong or maybe I need a better reason for it. So that was very exciting. That was one thing that I learned is that, wow, just talking to somebody can reveal strengths and deficiencies with their reasoning. And that alone could probably cause a person to take another look at their views, maybe even lower their confidence in the claim and possibly even discard the belief outright. So that was something that I learned. And that was that was the that was a major premise of Bogosian's book, of Pete's book here, is that, hey, try this and you'll probably make some progress. And that was one thing that I learned too, is that the SE approach that Pete created seems to freaking work. And that's why like I sometimes I get um, jittery just thinking about the implications of that approach. If we can if we can get it to the point where it's a regular part of our everyday culture, it's gonna have a profound influence on humanity. So that was extremely exciting. I've learned so much. I mean, I just, I've learned a lot in terms of video production. Like where's the best place to orient the camera on my chest so I don't cut off the person's head or something. But that was probably the biggest takeaway that lots of people are running around with beliefs that they can't justify to themselves. And I'm also probably in that boat. I'm not exempt in just looking at all these buffoons running around. I'm all of us, even Pete. We likely have beliefs that are not true, but we're so sure that they are. That was a huge learning moment. Um, has there been, and I've watched, I mean, you have so many conversations with people now. It's truly unbelievable. And if you want to send me some of the new ones, I can update the syllabus uh, <clears throat> next time I teach it from PSU. But one of the things that I've seen from these conversations, and again, there have been so many of these now, have any of the conversations caused you to change your belief about, well, about anything? There have been a few, well, almost all of my beliefs now, I'm less confident in them 
as a default now. So if something, if I was really dogmatic or certain about something, almost my default now is like, should I really be so certain of that? So that's profoundly changed. But like specific beliefs, I've, uh, I think I've shifted a little bit in terms of like in Texas, it's legal to walk around with a gun on your hip. You can open carry. You might even be able to conceal carry. I'm not exactly sure of the rules, but when I when I saw somebody, I was literally standing in line at the school to register my student for class. This was like two years ago at middle school and all these parents are around and the woman right ahead of me had a gun on her hip at the school with kids. That really upset me to see. However, I started talking to people who were proponents of that. And my view actually shifted. I, I was coming, I've come around a little bit on whether or not that's a good idea or not. I think I'm a little bit more open to the idea of walking around with a gun or having a gun on you simply because the response time. If there was a shooting, that person might actually be able to more quickly respond to it. Now, I understand I'm, a, I'm progressive. That's a very shocking thing to say to maybe a bunch of progressive people here. But I mean, I'm being honest. I, I, I've shifted in my view. Now, I'm not locked into that view. I'm willing to go either way. I think what happens is when you learn Pete's approach, this street epistemology approach of asking questions, is that you not only back off of your own confidence in things a tad, I think you're more open to hearing other people out. It's a little bit easier to take my ego out of that view and others now because of that approach that I've learned from Peter. Without going into the content too much, something you said really struck me. The big controversy at Portland State University, I would say, and I want the students to correct me if this is not true. I would say it is the big controversy as in number one. The number one controversy until very recently, literally like weeks ago, this was solved, is whether or not the campus police should have guns. And uh, I was always flabbergasted that I offered to host debates. I offered to host conversations. Nobody was having anything of it. And if you watch the videos of people at the town halls, I mean, they are going fucking berserk, like, like lunatics. They're just, there's no, there's no civility. There's no, this is my evidence. This is my yeah. reason. Of course, they get that from their professors. So that's how they learn this, this deranged behavior. But um, I think that the tragedy of that would be when people are so confident about a belief, particularly a moral belief. The likelihood, and and then they can engage in a conversation. They can't really even entertain ideas across an aisle. The almost inevitable likelihood of that is that someone will die. It's just inevitable. But on one side of the issue or other, like like the only way to solve problems is you have to first be honest about them, and two, you have to seriously entertain what a smart person from the opposing, who holds an opposing view would have to say, excuse me, because if you don't do that, then you can never really be sure that your belief is correct. I mean, you can never really be sure it's correct anyway, but there are degrees of, I just talked in my critical thinking class about probability, calibrated probability assessments. And it's always striking to me that we have now made a virtue of not conversing with people across a political and moral aisle. And this could not possibly be a good thing. This cannot possibly be a good, only bad can come of that. Hmm. 
Well, okay, so that yeah, that's a good example where the first thing that came to my mind as you were describing that was what venue are you in? Because if you're at a protest and you're trying to engage with somebody on that topic, or maybe even in a classroom where there are others around, there may be a, 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 a performative element to it. Like, I know my peers are watching. I know that there's a standard that I need to adhere to to be a part of my tribe and to signal that I'm a part of that tribe. And it may, may be difficult, but ask yourself, what venue am I in where I'm having this discussion? You may actually have a much better discussion if you have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody who is holding that view, where they can feel free to express it, and you can build trust. If you're talking with somebody, Pete, and there's 30 other people around listening, the stakes are way higher for both of you. And I think you'll have a much more fruitful conversation if you can. Like Those might be good places to go to find people that you disagree with, but reach out to them, be friendly, get their contact information, and maybe do a Zoom with them if you can. I think you probably make much more progress. The other thing yeah. too is, is uh, I think also, you're mentioning the importance of being able to understand what the argument is being made by your opposition. If we don't take the time to do that, you could very well be arguing, you more than likely are arguing against something that is not their argument, which could very well lead to their own frustration in dealing with you. And then the whole conversation just elevates. And now you're all talking past each other and you're arguing about positions neither of you hold. So it's, it's crucial that you listen to the opposing side. Yeah, and you know what else I think is crucial? You know, when I do, when I went to LA to do those impossible conversation series with Reed, I put out the bad videos too. I put out the bad conversations and, and I, I knew the consequences that I would have a Twitter mob of everybody telling me I'm a Nazi and a moron and an idiot. But I think it's really important to do that so you display your weaknesses, your blemishes and everything and realize that these are learning opportunities. I don't know if you saw that video. I just keep thinking about it. It was just so profound to me where the guy's talking about a border. Yeah, I did see that one. I was watching that. I'm like, I think they're I think they're misunderstanding a definition there. And then sure enough, it was like not, not until the very end that that kind of surfaced. Yeah, and the funny thing is, it's like with that conversation, it was so interesting to me because in How to Have Impossible Conversations, I talk about the importance of defining words up front. And uh, and I just did this with my editor for the book, Russell Blackford, who has a PhD, two PhDs. And we had a, we were very close friends. We had a very different idea of what words meant, you know, in terms of like what his royalties would be for the, for the he edited the book. And I think I use sales and that's a total like orders of magnitude different. Um, but even if you think you know what a word means, like border, that doesn't mean that you're on the same page with a native English speaker. Absolutely. It, it, it always astonishes me if words like, you know, you know, that are nouns, like a sales number or something, think about how difficult it is to define a word like faith. And really, but then when I say that, people say, oh, he's, you know, he's, he's, you know, some academic, he's just pedantic. Or, no, but no, I mean, you, you have to talk about what words mean up front. And if you don't do that, you can never really, you're just talking past each other, right? That's right. Yeah, that's, and that's one of the trickiest things to remember, maybe, is that, because uh, when you hear somebody say, like, I believe in God, or I take it on faith that that's true, or whatever word I think that a border should be built or something. 
we assume, oh, they're talking about wall. We make these leaps because that's just, it's a simple word and we're sort of expected to be able to follow along with what people say. So you have to become comfortable with pushing back and asking for clarification. Because if you don't, you could be talking past each other the, the whole time. And you were talking earlier, Pete, about like the importance of displaying your mistakes. I think that's important too, to show people that while you can learn this technique, you can learn all the ins and outs of it, like what to look for and what to say when you see it. But it is tricky to implement because there's distractions going on. Maybe your phone is buzzing. Maybe they say something that upsets you. And now you're you're still trying to ask questions, but now you're you're perturbed by this thing that they said that they didn't even mean it as a jab, but you took it as one. So it's kind of it's really easy to learn the approach, but implementing it is extremely hard. And I think it's good that you put those those examples up there. I don't I usually like to upload my best examples, but sometimes I have some bad ones. But in any event, I think it's good for people to see that even folks that are familiar with this method struggle with it sometimes because it might actually lower the barrier to entry for people who are considering to use it if they can see that these well-practitioned people are struggling with it as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was wondering if you have a video or I could just show you, let me share my screen with you. Uh, and if you have any of the, I think you're next week, we, we do the links here. Um, get to the syllabus. I'm still figuring out how to use this here. Okay. Um, I, I could probably send you a link to one if you wanted something specific. Well, we, can, we can, we can, the cool thing about this is we, we can play them here. Um, so you sent these to me a while ago. You sent this to me a while ago. And let me know if, like, I should probably have asked beforehand if everybody has had an opportunity to watch some of these. Oh, have I sent you the syllabus for this, Anthony? Uh, no, not lately. I think you did a while ago, but I haven't. Dude, I should send you the syllabus. It's, it took me a long time. I think I'm really proud of it. It's really good. It's, uh, I think, ask some. Yeah. I, it took me a long time, and I'm, I think it's like very, very happy with it. All right. Anyway. Um, see, those are examples of questions that I use. Yeah, so, oh, shit, I put them as tiny URLs. Oh, but you can kind of get it from here. Truth Valuation. Oh, yeah. Uh, I wonder which ones. Ghost and luck, God, Faith, Christian. But if you have any that's, that are like a few minutes and you just want to play and maybe, or you have a dissection video, I can mm. play here and everybody can see them. I can just share my screen. The, the Thirsty Spirits one might be good because if I'm not mistaken, it's broken up into three sections where we, we isolate the claim. We okay. talk about, is this the short one? Oh, this is two. Yeah, I can't give you the 22 minutes. Do you have a no. like a Yeah, there's a shorter one. Let's see. If you go to the video description of that, Pete, there might be a link to the shorter one. Keep going down. Oh, there we go. Um, watch a short clip with Maritza. Yeah, that one. You know, it's frustrating. I put, I put all this effort into my video descriptions and nobody reads them. Nobody looks at them. <laughs> I mean, some, some people might. Okay, um, this is, how long is this one? Oh, there's an ad. This is five minutes long, less than five minutes. This one might be good. Okay, because I, I this is important that if, if people haven't seen this, I think it will texture it, and then we can we can use this as a base to have the conversation. So I'm gonna I'm gonna play this one here. Identify the claim. I personally believe like that. 
not for shape, but like that spirits can come back like and like are with us mm-hmm. whether it's doesn't mean I like practice it anymore, but I believe it's a big possibility. You think it's possible that spirits can come back yes, like, to us after a human body after a human dies. Yes. Okay. And you said something like I'm not I don't like actively like do like the whole like trying to talk to them, but I I believe they're there. You have a view that when humans die it's possible that it can happen or it's actually happening. It's it's that they stay with us like I hmm. like my grandma she raised me with the belief of how once you die you have to leave a cup of water out because our spirits are still with us. They stay with us for a good amount of time before they go wherever they need to go so you keep hmm. a water a cup of water nearby so that in case they get thirsty on their on their travels, they can drink that. Your grandma advises leaving out a cup of water mm-hmm. for spirits because after people pass, they don't necessarily go away they, right they away. They go right away right immediately. And what's the purpose yeah. of the water? In case like they get thirsty in their travels, they can drink water. If they get thirsty during their travels. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Identify the reasons. I kept hearing like in my house. My grandpa died in my mom's room, so now my mom's room won't stay locked sometimes. Like, the door will lock it, and at the middle of the night, we'll hear the footsteps, and the door opens. Huh. And then sometimes we can hear my grandpa, like, calling up to us. So we leave a cup of water by his picture. Interesting. Identify the reliability of the method. Here's what I'm wondering about your evidence that you're using to claim with 90% confidence that spirits are real. Could I be raised in a household who thinks that leprechauns are real? All right? And if you, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you actually hear what sounds like footsteps, that you're justified in being 90% confident that those are leprechauns pitter-pattering around the house. Would I be justified in my 90% by calling those, the sound of footsteps evidence to justify my claim. Now this is the other concert, man. Uh. Okay, now I see what you're doing. What am I doing? So it's mostly like saying that my claim, I'm claiming my evidence to be that because I believe in it so much. When in reality, the evidence I have is something that you can shift to say it's anything. So it's not really proving it's spirits. If what you're calling evidence can be used to justify my 90% confidence that leprechauns are real, and it can also be used to confirm that 90% confidence that demons are real and 90% confidence that spirits of our loved ones are real. What does that say about the quality of your evidence? Well, that's not a good evidence. It's not, it doesn't have a strong base because it could be used for anything. Mm-hmm. Now, if that's the case, <laughs> is this moving too fast? No, but I'm like, 
questioning everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> questioning my beliefs. That tends to happen when people talk to me. Yeah, I, I, I forgot about this part. <laughs> I love that talk. Um, can you all hear me? If you have some time, you might want to check. It's a two-part series. I forgot to set that up and say that she comes back. That's the second time, uh, which makes me want to say, like, it's important that when you do have respectful conversations with people, they often want to come back for more. And that's what you want. You want to continue the dialogue so that you can keep challenging them. And as they're looking for better reasons to support their views, they can bring that back to you so you can entertain adopting their position because they may have found the truth. That's the whole objective, I think, ultimately of all this is to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. So I I want to I want to talk about some things in that video that you did that were so subtle. That... I just jot, jotted down some notes as it was playing. Okay. Well, <laughs> but, you, but... your notes. What do you What do you got? Oh, um, you want me to go, or did you want to you want to do something from go. the class? Okay. Um, let me start the okay. stuff. Questions from everybody after we we'll talk a little more and then we'll just open it up. Okay, so I'll go real quick. So like you you noticed that that video was broken up into three sections. We identified the claim. She thinks spirits are real. Why do you think it? Well, when you leave water out for them, you'll oftentimes hear footprints or footsteps in the hallway, and that's why I think that this is real. And then we talked about her how or the method, and that's the key of street epistemology is how are you verifying that that's a good reason for thinking that there are spirits going through your house. Um, but did you, I'm going to kind of go in order. Like one of the first things that you may notice is that I was repeating back what she said. I wanted here to hear her own words. So you notice like, okay, so if I'm understanding right, you'll take water and then leave it out for the spirits. And what's the purpose? Let me pause you there if I may. Mm, Yeah. The key key framing of that was that you place the burden of understanding on yourself, right? If I'm understanding, right. As opposed to, well, what do you mean by that? Or like, well, you, you know, you know, so, so if there was a misunderstanding, it was on you that you didn't understand, not that she wasn't clear. Right. If I said, this is the most confusing thing you've ever said to me or something like if, if I, if I, that will more than likely result in somebody being, being defensive and probably not willing to clear it up with you. But if, yeah, like Pete said, you put the misunderstanding on yourself, like, I'm so sorry, I'm just not following. Can you help me? What am I missing here? Exactly. You, you notice that the tone is completely different when you do it that way. Uh, you can, I, sorry, sorry. Let's just linger on this if you don't mind a second. Yeah. And you can actually feel it. I mean, you can literally feel in yourself the difference when someone says that to you. You feel a defensive posture go up as opposed to, oh, okay, maybe I can just explain this. Yeah. I'm sorry. But also, it's true. Like, I'm so right. sorry. I'm not following you. Totally. <laughs> So you're not lying to them to deceive them, to open them up. Like you're really revealing your own confusion. Yeah, there is no lying in this. That's the other thing about method. You don't, well, what do you, what's the, anytime you would attempt to lie, you only hurt, you only hurt yourself, right? Because if someone knows something you don't know, you should know it too. So that would, lying would prevent, not only would it prevent you from knowing it, but would it prevent you from even knowing what you mean? And then they wouldn't know what they mean. That was my London talk that you came to, right? Then no, we nobody would know what anybody else means because everybody's bullshitting everybody. Right. We have to gain clarity into the actual view that's being stated. Exactly. And that goes back to the to the definitions and everything. So you may have also noticed I said, hmm, when she said something like, I want to communicate to her that I've heard her and I'm wondering. Not agreeing. I don't say, yeah, yeah. 
there's a difference there that could be interpreted as as I'm concurring with what you're saying, which right. could open a person up, but it's not my honest view. So right. like you do want to make sure that you're honestly communicating, even if it's disagreement, you can do it in ways like, hmm, rather than saying, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, like leaving water out, like it's the evaporation, obviously, we live in Texas, or something, you know, don't, don't, don't do that. Um, and I didn't embarrass her at all. Like I said, oh, you know, like I could have easily set, made a quip to tease her about her view and I didn't do that. Uh, I can't read my handwriting here. Oh, evidence. Uh, we kind of got down to where she was saying, well, I've got evidence to back this up. This is my evidence. But then we started evaluating the quality of her evidence to her own standard, not to mine. Do you think that that's good enough evidence to conclude that something completely different is real? And she acknowledged that you could use that evidence to conclude. Now, I got lucky. I, I may have been pushing it a little bit by saying demons and other things that I guessed that she didn't think were true. I've had people say, well, I think all those things are true, too. <laughs> so I got, I got a little bit lucky there by her not going down that rabbit hole and saying, like, oh, I, I totally believe leprechauns are real. That very well could have happened. But fortunately, it didn't. Yeah, and you never know. That's the other thing about this. Is it all right if I interrupt when you're talking or no? Absolutely. Yes, please. Yeah, um, that, that's the other thing that's interesting. You never really know what anybody's going to say to you. I mean, you have no idea. I never have any idea when I do this stuff. With mm -hmm. even, if somebody, if, even if somebody, you can talk to 10 people in a row that have the exact same claim. Like on the West Coast, we hear a lot of the law of attraction and the secret. In Texas, it's all about God. In New York, it might be something about vaccines or something. But typically, when you get into the definition of what these words mean, the reasons and the methods, they're all over the board. There, but it's it's not like there's so many variations that you don't know where to go with your questions. It's all pretty self-explanatory. But try to go where your conversation partner takes you. This isn't you reaching over and grabbing the wheel and steering the car for them, right? Like sit, you're in the passenger seat. Like sit and talk to them. Like why did you go there? I'm I'm a little curious why you slowed down at that light rather than just zip through it or what? You know what I mean? So like just kind of go where they take you. Um, and then like the, one of the last things that happened there, did you notice I, uh, I checked in with her, like, is this moving too fast? Are you becoming overwhelmed with questions? Because if you are, we're done, you know, we'll, we'll end it and you can come back for a third talk if you'd like. A confused conversation partner doesn't make for a good conversation. So you gotta make sure that you check in occasionally. Are you okay if we continue talking? Because these questions can be quite upsetting. And you don't want an upset conversation partner. You want somebody who's wondering along with you how they yeah. determine that this is true. Yeah, I want to say, and I think this is so important. It's interesting in your list. You didn't note the thing that I think was the most important thing you did. You didn't even note it. Was it the pause? Was it pause? It was the pause. Okay, I do have that there. Can you see it? Yep, I, yep. I just didn't. I just I didn't talk to it. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll get to the pause in a second. Yeah. Um, so often when you speak to somebody, so I published a piece a while ago about a con the confusions with the Socratic method. And this, I can boil the whole paper down into this. Uh, it, it had, I can't remember the exact title, it had the word perplexity in the title, but people will become perplexed when you start asking them questions. Maybe a better word in this context is aporia, like wonder, like, and I saw that for the pauses, 
which was, in my opinion, the most important thing. You just didn't fill in the lacuna. You didn't fill in the space. You just let people think. You let them marinate in their thoughts. You weren't filling it with an idea. You weren't telling them what to think. You were just letting them be, letting them be with their own thoughts. You weren't forcing anything. Um, and the perplexity comes, people beca- can become perplexed, like in that sense, well, geez, well, what about leprechaun? The point isn't to perplex people, but perplexity can come as a result of a consequence of asking people targeted questions, right? So people can be the way, and that's the other thing, you never really know how people are going to respond. Not only do you not know what they're going to say to you, you have no idea how they're going to respond. Like, you know, I mean, literally, you have no idea the response people are going to give. Um, but that's also the reason why I think that the um, the import, pausing is so important. It's the, and I think this is what people misunderstand about the method. It when you pause, it's a very um, looking for. I don't know if it's helpful or if it's. It's a very non-confrontational. It's a, it's a way for people to just be with their thoughts. You know, it's it's a way to assist in people's reflection on things. And I, and I think it really is a very lovely thing to do. And often we're so uncomfortable with those pauses that we don't do that. Mm-hmm. There's almost a stigma of waiting too long to respond because maybe your conversation partner, who's unfamiliar with this method, sees that as doubt. Like, oh, he's uncertain of his position because he can't answer that question. Ha, I got him. That's the mentality that we're at today, and we need to shift that. We should, we should be uh, enamored by pauses. Like that's a breather in the conversation that lets people take the time to think about what you've just asked them, and then craft the best response that they can give back to you. Because that's what you're looking for. You don't want to be knocking down a straw man argument of their position. You want to help them reveal their best reasons for thinking that that's true. And giving them the pause to think that through is great. What baffles me, though, and I don't know if you still see this, Peter, but a lot of people will point to what we're doing and say, well, you're manipulating them in some way. And it's like, how on earth is what is going on their manipulation when it's their own words coming back to them with plenty of time to think about their own words? I think you would think it's manipulation if, and this is when we can use, since we just had John Loftus on here, our mutual friend, John Loftus, if they they believe that it's somehow immoral for people to not hold particular conclusions. And then I always ask, you know, if they're a Christian, I'll say, okay, well, is it immoral with a Muslim? Oh, no. Hmm. Is it immoral with a Buddha? No, but it's immoral with a Christian. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So it's immoral with your belief. So there's nothing intrinsic to the method itself. It's the Hmm. conclusion that's problematic. Yeah, I think that's a big part of, of your second book is this idea of uh, a moral epistemology undergirding all of this, that I'm a good person because I'm holding this view. We have to disentangle your self-understanding as, as you being a good, decent human being with the beliefs that you happen to be holding at this particular period of time. But they're, yeah. they're so interwoven. Yeah, and what is so astonishing to me, kind of the from the low from the high def view which we're doing now in the particular to to the to the high def view is the law is the cultural moment in which we find ourselves in which 
conversation to me seems very few, certainly at, I'm 54, certainly in my lifetime, there are very few <clears throat> periods, if any, probably no periods to be blunt, in which the importance of having conversation is more stark and important than now, to the move by many, particularly in academia, many, I don't want to say my colleagues, because say that, but other colleagues at other universities, let's just put it that way, um, are overtly hostile to the idea of conversation. They have words for it, like platforming, Judith Butler calls it non-consensual platforming. They don't even want their articles next to someone who disagrees with them. Everybody is a Nazi. Um, and the consequence of this is that not only do we trap ourselves in views of the world, but the very people that those folks who are against discourse, dialogue, and free speech are attempting to help, it really is the ultimate bigotry of low expectations. Because we believe these people are just incapable of, they're just going to believe this stuff, and this is just for them, and who are we, the colonizers, to come in and talk about this stuff. When you really let that percolate, that is perhaps the most racist, pernicious, and insidious view one could ever hold. It's definitely one of our biggest challenges, I think, is, is we've, we've stigmatized productive discourse. Like just yeah. sitting down with somebody you disagree with can get you de kicked out of your own tribe or... Yeah. Yeah, you'll lose a thousand followers or subscribers if you were to share something. You'll lose friends in real life if you do. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I, uh, no, nobody at PSU is allowed to talk about the uh, who they voted for, and I think that's actually a good, a good reason, a good thing. But somebody, and you probably know this individual, one of my writing partners said that he's going to vote for a particular candidate. You know what I'm talking about? I, I haven't followed. Uh his twitter recently but uh, I, I can guess who he said if it's causing some controversy it's causing people to go freaking out of their minds berserk uh and i woke up with just you know oh that friend oh i, th I was thinking somebody else but, is texting me all these people are texting me they're like what's yeah. going on what's his face wanting to vote <laughs> and i'm like well you know what are you asking me for i mean we're different people uh, but the, but the idea is i think what you said is so important when you go against your own tribe, there's a punishment there, right? There, yeah. Or, you know, you not speaking up against his decision to vote for that candidate then puts a target on you. Like, yeah. And not only does it put a target on you uh, and, and you become tainted by association. Do you remember when, when uh, in London we were with uh, Andrew Doyle, you know, Tatiana McGrath and James Lindsay and Helen Plucker, we were on stage and they were talking about, uh, the subject came up of talking to Nazis. And I said, yeah, I talk to Nazis. I'll talk to anybody. I'll have a conversation with literally anybody about, about anything. The exception to that is I will not have conversations with people who have harassed me or targeted my family hmm. or to kill me or reported me to the diversity office uh, for anything, but particularly beating my family or for raping people or for murdering people. So if you've done that, you've crossed the line with her. But anybody else within the sphere, I'll have a conversation with these people. Hmm. And... I think you're absolutely correct. There is a uh, taint by association. You ought not to talk to those people. And I think if you want a model, which is in the film that, that you and I are in, the Travis's film, I think Daryl Davis is the model for that. I really think he's the model. You want to speak to who Daryl Davis is for a minute? Yes. Uh, he 
ha has a pension. He's a he's a black man. I think he's does he is live in Memphis or something. He's a like a jazz player, I think, and he's been he's been meeting up with people who don't like black people. Um, you would say that they're white supremacists or something, and oh, yeah. rather actual. Th like actual ones. Yeah. And rather than uh, ignore them or blow them off, he engaged with them. And he shared, I think, his love of music with them. That was the common ground that they had. And he would listen to why they didn't like black people. And I, more than I, I don't know the details of his individual conversations, but he's been able to help a lot of people take another look at their views and discard them. They send him their robes, their their uh, KKK robes, to say like, I'm not in this anymore. I'm hearing that you're collecting these. Here you go. I don't need it anymore. So he, he's interfacing with people and changing minds by doing so. Yeah, I would love to talk about that more, but I'm not allowed to talk about that uh, university guidelines. But uh, I think, well, I'll just, I'll just leave it there and move on. All right, let me yeah. let's do, why don't we, Anthony, are you, you cool if I open this to questions from folks? Is that Sure, cool? yeah. Yeah, your, right. hardest, your hardest questions, whatever you'd like to ask. I'm going to mute my mic and you guys just go. Okay. I like that word perplexity. I wrote that down. I have to, to look into that. Any thoughts? Well, we, we don't have to talk about necessarily communication tactics. Like if you just have some general questions about atheism, like there's, there's this big controversy in the atheist community about the definition of what an atheist is and that type of thing. Yeah. We can get into that if you'd like. Or... Why don't we speak to that while people are, while we're warming up to stuff. Let's speak. To, go ahead. Okay. Um, there seems to be two main definitions of atheist. One, I think, is I lack the belief that there's a God. And then maybe another one would be, like, I believe that there are no gods. There's a subtle distinction there. And I think the, the main reason why a lot of people will say, like, I don't have a belief in any gods, I think there's a worry f uh, largely on the atheist side that if I say that, I'm avoiding taking on any burden of proof to justify it. Whereas if I said... I believe that there are no gods. I think a lot of people listen to that and say, he's making a fact claim. But in reality, I think I can explain that away and say, I simply don't find the reasons that I hear from people who do believe in gods sufficient. That's it. When I read those holy books, they just seem like, they seem like um, mythology to me. And that's why I don't believe it. I think we should probably... And that view is really not a popular one, by the way. There are a lot of atheists who will, like very prominent ones, who like they're willing to fight tooth and nail to say, I don't have a belief in any God. That's my position. But if someone were to ask you, do you believe in any gods? You're going to probably say yes or no. You do have a belief regarding that question. So I, I guess I'd, I, I'm here to sort of make the case to say, don't be afraid of saying that I do hold a view that there are no gods. And you don't have to worry about taking on a burden to demonstrate it. You can just simply say, everything that I've heard so far just doesn't convince me. Why does it convince you? And then that can lead to a really good conversation where you can use the approach that Pete advocates for. And, and, you, and the, you, you've really mastered. So I think that's important. So I, that goes on, that goes in the line, uh, comports with this idea of defining words up front and making sure everybody's on the same page. And then from Rappaport's rules, repeating the claim back to somebody and say, oh, 
and 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 what you're looking for is I, I in the ideal world you're looking for them to say that's right those two words yeah. on that note though when I am talking with people about definitions of words for the purpose of a conversation that's not a hill I'm willing to die on if that's your view I'll adopt your definition of your words that we're using for this dialogue so that you can better understand your own position you don't have to get too wrapped up in what the meaning of words are go with it. That would be my recommendation. And you're going to probably help that person have a much better understanding of their view if you're talking in their own language. All right. Yeah, I think that the the word that's most in need of disambiguation and definition, et cetera, <clears throat> is faith. And particularly yeah. the difference between faith, hope, and trust. And... I think a way to conceptualize this <clears throat> is crossing a bridge. Like, let's say you're someplace in, you know, I don't know, Vietnam or someplace in Asia, you know, like I just say that because you have these images of these, you know, rickety bridges over these ancient, um, I don't know, cliffs or what have you. You know what I'm talking, you know what I mean? When I'm talking about that, I'm thinking of Indiana Jones where like that, that rickety bridge, is yeah, that be, too dated? I realized once after I said Vietnam, I'll probably get a complaint from the university. But um, <laughs> so, so you, so you're on one of these these bridges and this ancient bridge. And now you're like, holy shit! I don't really, I'm not really keen on walking over this bridge. And you say to the guide, "Hey, man, uh, I don't know. This is freaking me out. You know, if you fall, I'm dead, and I, I really don't know." I really don't want to walk over this bridge. I need to know it's safe. Now compare the three responses from the guide. I have faith that this bridge is safe. I hope that this bridge is safe. I trust that this bridge is safe. Now, if he said to me, I hope that this bridge is safe, there's no freaking way I'm crossing that bridge. <laughs> right. But the, the, the larger point of this is that people, people use these words as synonyms, but these are just simply not synonyms. They're just not. You can pretend they're synonyms all you want, but the fact that you can use them in some contexts and circumstances and not in others, and that, and I, I um, have that, talk of you know faith being pretending to know something you don't know and that faith claims are knowledge claims so that you know i think it's when you're at your pastor and you say he says you know um uh you know i i'm gonna lay hands on you and you say is it gonna work he says you know i have i have faith it's gonna work i hope it's gonna work i have oh confidence is another one mm. i have confidence that it's gonna work i trust that it's gonna work these are subtle differences, but they are very significant when it comes to, excuse me, when it comes to crossing bridges or what your doctor's going to give you for medication, you know? I love the bridge metaphor because it's a tangible thing that you can actually test in reality to see if your hope was justified. You could hope that the bridge holds your weight and you can cross the ravine and get to the other side. And you can say, oh, my hope was warranted. My hope was justified. If you take that leap of hope in this case, uh, I trust the bridge will hold my weight. I can trust it and I can go out and halfway through, I can find that my trust was unwarranted. I yeah. was just too heavy. 
my body is three times the size maybe of a of an average person from that area what's interesting though that faith is probably one of i almost tweeted this like last week uh, coincidentally but this is nothing new faith is one of the most slipperiest words ever invented and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but when somebody says faith, you should probably spend five to 10 minutes on what exactly do they mean by that word and write it out. Yeah, they, what, they see the Hebrews 111. Hebrews yeah. 111. And a lot of people who say that word don't even think it. They just say it because they were told that that's the answer that you give. Right. That happens a lot. So figure out what they mean by the word. There's also an interesting wrinkle here. There are several countries that don't have a word for faith. German. Or, or the the equivalent, sorry, the equivalent of it means belief. That's correct. Yeah, I have but... a I have faith that we're having a Zoom conference right now. Right. I believe it to be the case. So um, there's some there's some language issues there too. But here's I... the key the key part of all of this is regardless of the word that you're, they're using, they're they're using faith, trust, or hope to indicate a, a certain level of confidence that what I think is going to happen is going to happen. I think this bridge will hold me. I think this God is real. And I'm taking it on faith that it's the case. With the bridge, you can test it, maybe to your own death, but it is testable. With other types of supernatural claims, I could probably take it on faith that I leave out water, that there really are spirits that are pitter-pattering down my hallway, right? But how would I actually be able to test it? And that's the distinction is that when we really look at how people are using that word in particular, there's a testing component that's that's missing when it's used for these types of claims. It's not missing on the bridge claim, but it's missing on the God claim. And that's the big distinction. Yeah, I, I want to, I think that's an outstanding point. I, I want to talk about something you just said, unless there, there are any questions, I'll just finish this point. But I, I have found a few years ago, I started really thinking about that word hope. And that was, I think you, you came to my Imagine No Religion talk, right? In Canada? I couldn't make it. I had an eye injury that prevented me from getting on a flight. Do yeah, you remember yeah. that? Yeah. yeah. But um, there's something that is so unbelievably seductive about the word hope. I mean, Barack Obama's first term won a whole, won a presidency on the word hope. There's something about hope that people will barter their rationality for. Yes. And it's, it's almost a desperation to it, an extent. It, it, it is. I mean, Sam Harris says, you know, look, we, I, I hope that I have a diamond the size of a refrigerator in my backyard. Right. And that's the other thing about the idea, the Christian hope that's always, I don't want to say it's an abuse of the word hope, but <clears throat> to hope for something it would seem to me that there has to be somewhat of a chance of your hope manifesting, somewhat of a realistic chance. Having a, and, and frankly, it seems more realistic that I would discover a, a, a diamond the size of a refrigerator in my backyard than the fact that Jesus walked on water. Exponentially more, in fact, orders of magnitude more likely. Because one would have to violate every law of physics. I'm not talking about, you know, those dudes who put on those shoes and run across the thing or, you know, water into wine or, you know, talking snakes and that stuff. Those violate the laws of physics. Um, so it doesn't seem to me, I guess you could have a hope that the laws of physics were violated by some supernatural entity. But it doesn't seem to me, and I don't want to say a legitimate use of word hope, because I, I'm not 
because I, I don't, I'm not trying to be the hegemon in terms of what the word hope ought to mean and ought not to mean, but it does seem to me that that's a chink in the, in the armor that protects us from believing false things. And it's the idea that if we have hope in something, we're more likely to suspend rational judgment. And sometimes when we hear people say, well, I hope it's true, almost as a courtesy, we, we tend to back off and give people uh, an excuse, like um, we kind of stay out of their way and we don't push back on it. Like it's almost a taboo thing to push back on somebody's hope. Like, yeah. am I crushing this? Did I crush this young girl's dreams that she's actually leaving out water for her uncle and her grandfather yeah. who just, who, are, who passed you away? Know? That reminds me, I was actually thinking of having him come in, but I can't even imagine what would happen if, so you, you're, you're buddies with Dave Silverman. You're good, you're good buddy. You're buddies with Dave Silverman, right? I messaged him last night just to check in on him. He is the most hardcore atheist I have ever met in my whole life. <laughs> well, he was the, uh, the president of American Atheists for, I don't know, seven years, 10 years. Yeah. When uh, someone who's like a mentor to me, Victor Stanger, died, he was at the time the most hardcore. I missed, I, I didn't really, I know that you were very close to him. I didn't really get a chance to, that's kind of when I was coming onto the atheist scene, right about that time when he passed. He was, I mean, his intellect was just unbelievable. Anyway, I mentioned Silverman. I was thinking of having asking Silverman to come in here, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to traumatize anybody. Uh, even after I hang out with Silverman for a few minutes, I'm like, whoa, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Can I touch back on the hope thing just real yeah, well, quick? Well, that's why I mentioned – I was oh. sorry. I started to segue to that. Sorry for, for the hope thing. So I started to segue to that because Silverman said something really interesting to me, which is what made me think of Silverman in the first place, is that he would tell people, you know, when when his mom would go to a, 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 um, a fairy teller or a, a – um, um, Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like a tar tarot card reader or something yeah, like that. Fortune like, teller. Yeah. Fortune yeah, yeah. teller. Thank you. Fortune yeah. Teller, yeah. Uh, that when he disabused his mom of that notion, everyone is like, oh, you know, Dave, that's really great. But then when he started talking about his mom's Judaism, we were like, oh, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. And there is a religion has some kind of a shield. And I think it's hope related mm. in a sense that like particularly things are weighted heavier if it's a hope for the eternity as opposed to just a temporal hope like fortune of this life. Uh, but I interrupted you. You were going to say. Okay. So when I hear somebody say that they hope that the bridge will hold or they faith means hope and that's how I can be sure that it's true is because I'm hoping that it's true. Hope is very close to desire. So oftentimes I'll say, you know, when it really comes down to it, is this something that you want to be factually true? Correct me if that isn't what you're saying. And sometimes people will say, I guess I really do want it to be true. Are you making it true because you want it to be true? And you have to be very careful. You don't want to lead people down a path that they're not going. Give them plenty of time and pause and make sure that they understand what you're asking. But what tends to get revealed here is that these beliefs are meeting psychological needs. That's James Lindsay's argument. Yeah. I need to know that my grandpa and uncle are being taken care of in the afterlife, and I'm a part of that because I love them. They were good to me. Right. I have everybody, this necklace from them, right? Like there's yeah. it's very, Everybody yeah. is wrong about God. That's his argument there. And I, I must totally admit that I am also very susceptible to this, man. When my dog died, I mean, it was I was just 
in his, I was utterly in, inconsolable. Teddy, you met Teddy. Uh, you know, I, you didn't mention publicly which dog it was. I was hoping it wasn't was Teddy. Uh, I'm sorry, sorry to hear that. Life devastated. I was utterly, and I just kept thinking, like, wow, if I believed in some kind of afterlife, I would be so comforted right now. But you, you know, when you said, um, when you said desire, I think that's really important. And I want to go back to the bridge thing. So there you are, you're looking at this rickety old bridge mm-hmm. and you say, Hey man, is this, is this safe? And he's like, well, I desire it to be safe. Yeah. And I desire all those goods that are on the other side of the chasm that I'm like, I, that's where I want to go. Right. I mean, if somebody told me that they desired that the bridge is going to hold my weight, I would thank them, <laughs> but there's no way I'm walking across the bridge, right? Unless it could be tested and demonstrated before you walk your ass out there. Yeah, so right? you'd have to have a fat person that but, walked over and the bridge didn't collapse, right? But, but, but here's what's so twisted about faith is that it's viewed as a virtue to believe that that bridge will hold you without being able to test it. Right. And I'm a good person because I'm taking on faith that the bridge will hold me. I'm taking it on faith that the God will be there. I'm taking it on faith that I'll right. see my, my grandpa and my uncle again when I die. And that's that's the – that's the – notice how interesting that is. It shifted from an epistemological claim to a moral claim. It shifted from mm-hmm. uh, I have evidence for this thing, therefore I believe it, to I'm a good person if I believe it. Right. So it, from epistemology to morality. When the very question is, how are you concluding that it's factually true? Right. So and the method time, the right. method is because I want it to be true. Right. And every time you avoid going back to epistemology and going back to that sincere asking of the question, well, what are your reasons for believing that? How do you know it's true? She shouldn't have, and then you can, you know, you populate that with yeah. other sorts of questions. However, what we've learned is just simply saying, you just believe that this is true because you want it to be true. And it's meeting psychological needs. The walls will go up. You really do have to hear them out because maybe you can't assume that that's how they're using the word faith. They may say, I think faith is a horrible method for arriving at the truth. I have evidence for it. So hear them out. You have to go where they take you. Don't lead with, is this all based on faith? I don't even like mentioning that word because it's so slippery to begin with. I want them to mention it first if it's even part of their calculus. Yeah, and that's the one thing I've learned from doing so many of these conversations is I think, and I, I mentioned this in previous class, I think that the disconnect between Christians and atheists is, uh, is that atheists believe Christians believe on the basis of no evidence. Christians believe that they believe on the basis of evidence. Yep. The problem is that what it, it's not about, ev- I mean, there are exceptions to that, of course, you know, Tertullian, et cetera, but you know, I believe because it's insane. But 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 bracketing that, the the idea is that I I love the fact that you're writing. What are you writing, by the way? Well, um, you mentioned evidence, and there's a really important link between evidence and faith that I want to touch on. So. Oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go. Ahead. <laughs> okay, and I, I I'll I'll forget it if I don't jot it down. That's one thing yeah, that I've learned. Yes, I'm talking. Okay, to so you're right. A lot of believers think that they have evidence to support their claim. And then when you ask them, how are you verifying your evidence? That's when they say faith. And they usually use the, the, the descriptions or definitions that Pete mentioned. It's either trust or hope or some variation of that. But be careful. They may be defining it as belief or evidence. It'll be defined a thousand different ways. But here's the big difference. You can't test the evidence that you think that you have if you're taking it on faith that it's true, based on most definitions that people have. 
but you can test evidence if you use more reliable methodologies for verifying your evidence. Like, let's run a test. Let's let's uh, get some pigs <laughs> that weigh just as much as me and send them across the bridge and let's observe and see how the bridge reacts. All right, we can test the evidence that's available to us, but when it comes to these supernatural claims, that testing component is not there. And, and that's what, faith is what allows people to smuggle in insufficient evidence to support their claim. That's correct. Say that again, because I think it's so important. Faith is what allows people to smuggle in evidence that is insufficient to support their claim. Now, there's an asterisk there. You have to figure out what they mean by faith. But by most definitions that theists will give for thinking that they're justified in concluding to a high degree of confidence that something is true, faith is that, is, faith is that little beast that lets you believe anything. You can believe, you can take anything on faith and think that it's true. But most people don't realize that until you engage with them on dialogue about that. They have to discover it on their own by you asking questions, but don't drive to a conclusion that they're not, that they don't hold. There's, yeah. a, lot of, there's a lot of ifs, then, buts in there, but if so, you play this back, it should make more sense. So, you you know what's interesting, um, so I'm going to have some, I don't know how I'm going to do this since every, every week is filled with people, atheist speakers about different things, but I'm going to have some Christians come in and Muslims, that's the plan, I only got 10 weeks, but... Um, I have, so I asked a buddy of mine who's hardcore Christian who I should have in class, and he's telling me, he gave the name of, of pretty prominent um, Christian apologists, but they're presuppositionalists yeah. at their core, and I just, I just have such a problem with that on so many levels, and I was talking to Loftus about that. What do you think about that? Okay, so just to explain to the class, at least in my view, when I hear someone say that they're a presuppositionalist or a presuppositionalist apologist, means usually they assume it to be factually true from the start. They're starting with the conclusion, and then they're looking at all these reasons that back up the assumption that they've made. Now, many precepts will disagree with that description. That well, I bet they would agree, honestly, because I think I'm being pr pretty charitable in my description of it. They also tend to go on and say, how dare you even suggest that I need to provide you with evidence to support this claim? I've already presupposed it to be the case. I'm on good footing because I know it to be true because it was revealed to me in the scriptures or something. Uh, you can explore how they concluded it was actually revealed to them. That, that I think is the, the Achilles heel of their argument. But it's very frustrating when you meet somebody who says, I know that this is true, and you actually know it too. You're just withholding it. Or you're lying. I get that too. You're lying. You just want to sin and you're withholding the truth that has been revealed yeah. to you. Not the gay thing yet. You just don't believe in God because you want to commit homosexual acts. Have you gotten that yet? Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen all sorts of That's reasons you want to sin. That. But now that I'm older, no one thinks of me that way, so I don't get it anymore. Yeah, I don't get that. I don't get that either. But uh, I, I've heard people say they give all sorts of reasons why you are just simply denying the truth. Even outsider test of faith, like John Loftus's thing that he likes to promote, tends to fall on deaf ears with presuppositionalists. They have a way of sort of dismissing it. It doesn't well, land with them. You know, my friend recommended that to me, and you know, you know this hardcore Christian guy. I, I said, I said. Uh, I I just don't know. I just don't see that as I don't see that as productive for anybody. 
presupposing something is true? Well, no, like having a presuppositionalist come in and talk to the class as opposed oh. to having someone like William Lane Craig, who would never, I think he called me an enemy of the people or something, but uh, an enemy of <laughs> But that was in Cultural 1.0. He said something very uncharitable about me. Mm. But that was in the last Cultural War. Maybe he's had a- I, th- I think the presup argument is so weak that, uh, that, uh, yeah, I don't know if I would, I, I've had a lot of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, prolific or popular presuppositional apologists, like saying, you know, Anthony, please debate me, argue with me. I just ignore them. Yeah. I, I don't I, I don't like giving them a lot of oxygen to promote an argument that is so weak. Yeah, I had dinner with the world's leading presuppositionalist, James White. He is one smart cookie dude. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he, I actually really liked him tremendously. I thought he was a great guy. I, I, you know, we got along, we got along splendidly. Um, I mean, it's interesting. He was telling me that he, I think he likes to run or bike ride or something. And when he does, he thinks about arguments for the existence of God all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, boy, did you really got to get out more or something? You got to really like get a hobby like jujitsu where you can't think about something like that. But, um, you know, I thought about asking him. I'm sure he'd come in. And I'm friends with, you know, Tom Askell. I'm, well, friends might be too strong a word, but certainly very friendly. And Bodie Bauckham and these guys. I could ask these folks. Oh. But, um, That'd be cool. But, yeah, I, I, but I do. I don't. I just. There's just something that is so deeply disturbing to me. You know what it is? There's something so disingenuine and even dishonest about presuppositionalism that I don't see in any other type of apologetic. Yeah. I mean, I don't just go into a thing. Can you imagine if you went into a street epistemology conversation and be like, well, I got the truth and that's that? And like, I mean that that's not even a conversation that's just yeah that, and you do too and you do too but you're just denying it uh there is a video on my channel i think his name is jason maybe your class would be interested in watching it it's like it's like 45 minutes long but he's he's basically a presuppositionalist we spent a lot of time at the what and the why level and not so much at his methodology level but it's still a good talk and you can really see he was struggling to explain how he can presuppose that it was the case well help me understand because for the life of me i can't understand this I can't understand why you wouldn't just why presuppose that when you could presuppose literally anything. Right. If I had to talk with a popular precept, and I know this kind of goes counter to what we were just saying about like you need to be open and talk to people. However, when these folks maybe have an audience that could be inspiring other people to adopt a very horrible argument, maybe that's kind of where I, I draw my line. But what I think would be useful is more than likely this individual is navigating reality for other things. They're going to the store, they're going to the bank. They are inspecting boilers because that's part of their job. Tell me, what would happen if you decided to presuppose some of the elements of the job that you're doing or when you go to the bank? Can you see any downsides of actually assuming that it's actually the case as opposed to wondering about it and questioning it and testing it and maybe even having some evidence to back it up? You can completely set aside the the possibly reactive God claim that you're talking about and just talk about a mundane topic, but apply all the reasoning that they're using in this mundane topic. Mm-hmm. Now, if they understand that you're doing that to ultimately get to the God claim, they may be less open and honest with you, mm-hmm. but that could be really useful. If, to just take me through a regular everyday example where you use the same approach of arriving at conclusions that you are from one of the most important decisions of your life. They give you special pleading then. 
this is a special belief and therefore I'm justified in thinking that it's true because it's one of the most important decisions in my life or something. Right. Yes. Something that's exempt about this particular belief. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then I'll say something like, well, again, it's just, it's just so dishonest. Like, well, why not presuppose it's not exempt? Or why not presuppose this is a, you know, the great pumpkin. Right. Why not so presuppose? Sometimes I do like a variation of, of Loftus's outsider test for faith. And I'll say, let's say we happen to notice somebody who is presupposed that a completely different God is real. Right. And according to your view, they're mistaken. And I'm probably mistaken and they're wrong, right? Like, what would you suggest that we do to reach them? Is that in your book? I think you might have something like that. I don't even remember. But I, I, uh, I saw that, too, in the talk that you did with the guy who... Um, God, I play this talk. I play this when I, when I, in the quote unquote before times, before the p pandemic, I have a little mm. clip in your thing and the guy's walking along. I think it's about miracles. He's an older guy. He's a white guy. He's like, well, well, what about the Muslims if they believe this? And he's like, well, what if it, blah. and then you say something <laughs> like, well, what if you're raised in a belief? Well, they're just children. They don't know any better. Right. Remember that talk? That was, yeah. Brilliant talk. Which would be, and he says, that they were just raised with that belief, which is unfortunate. Right. Every time I play that talk, yeah. everybody laughs because everybody sees it so clearly what he can't see. So it's a version yeah. of the other. And when I go out to have these talks, yes, it is to help the people that I'm talking with take another look at their views. It's helping me take a look at his perspective and see, did he arrive at his conclusion with good reasons? No. Okay. It's one of those, but it's also to record it so that people like, I mean, I'm, I'm tickled that you show that in class. People will watch these videos. My, my professional presentations when I go around the world, I show I, I, that. I love that you do that because that extends that conversation thousands fold. Right. Where people can view it and be like, oh my gosh, that poor guy, he's, holy shit, is that me? Right? right? Like the light bulb goes off in their own minds when they watch it. Yeah, and there's there's something about, like I just keep thinking like, how do we, we have a serious problem here that we have created a culture that's inimical to conversation and speaking across divides. I mean, this is a very, very serious problem and instead of trying to work on it and make it better, our university system is almost the entire thing exclusively geared up to make it worse. All, the whole thing is like being retooled to tell everybody, you can't talk about that, it's offensive, it's a racist, you're triggering someone, they need a safe space, this is a thing. And the consequence of that over time is people become more brittle when they hear ideas that don't comport with their own is, you know, Jim and Helen's book, they, they, in cynical theories, they have this great thing. Like, let's say that you're 99% right about everything, everything. Let's just, everything you're 99% right about. Isn't that more reason to give the person who was to have a conversation with someone who you could be 1% wrong about. So then you could be a hundred percent right about everything. Right. Or you can help other people with the mistaken view to adopt yours. hundred percent. And yeah. There's something about this idea that we want to, I told the, the former administration that we need to, we need a rebranding of Portland State University. And that rebranding is the place to go to have difficult conversations. Uh, needless to say, that idea did not go over well, to say the least. But th there is, I do think, Aristotle, I think people have a hunger to know. I think that's true. And I think people have a hunger to intellectually test themselves to 
to, I'm not a big fan of debate, as you know, uh, unless, unless someone's met the defeasibility conditions. In other words, told me, uh, what would I need to do to revise my belief? But I think conversations are far more, more productive. Uh, but, but I do think debate has its role. I had a letter wiki. I don't know if you saw it with Lori Penny on letter wiki about that. I've been meaning to get back to the next thing, but about the importance of debate. Um, but I do think that unless we adopt the value of having conversations and speaking to people who have different beliefs and allowing people to students in particular to freely ask questions. I was told once when I asked um, for what evidence there were for microaggressions, I didn't say there were no microaggressions. I specifically asked, what is the evidence for this? I was told that asking for the evidence of microaggressions was a microaggression and I would be reported. Mm. I wonder if a simple rephrasing, like how would a person be able to tell that they've experienced a microaggression? So rather than say, like, where's your evidence, you can sort of soften it. And you're also getting to the methodology. Like, how do you actually go about doing it when you think that you've been, what is it, microaggressed? <laughs> is that the well, there's, there's also microaggression by proxy now. So someone else can feel microaggression because they feel that someone else has felt a microaggression. Yeah. Yeah, but my whole point is that we need to, uh, you know, in the last, I don't know if it's, this is this, the case where you live because you live in Texas, but I can tell you for a fact Almost every conversation that I have had, I've been in going to uh, just opened up. We're going to, I am going alone to the socially distanced event. I don't want to say party, but events where people have their chairs laid out and you're like 10 feet from each other and you're outside, et cetera. Anyway, almost every, no, no, it's every, every one of these, I think I've gone to six so far of different people, different sets and settings. Everybody, every time has come up with, I'm worried about the election. I'm worried about violence. I'm worried about a civil war. And it seems to me to be so obvious that the solution is we have to start talking to each other again. We have to. We cannot continue to look at people who hold different beliefs than we do as existential threats. That's what's causing, especially in this society, which is almost, there are more guns than people. It's a terrible idea. For multiple uh, multiple reasons, but when we have an infrastructure that's preventing, I just read the I think it was from the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, Greg Lukianos organization. Was a great guy, by the way. When when you you read the stuff that they I think it's their organization put out when students are afraid to ask questions in class, when students are afraid to voice their opinion, that's a problem. That's a problem because we're, we've created a generation of students now who get out and they don't they don't even know the other side of the argument. Hmm. I bet you if you if you went around, I'm not going to mention my university, but if you went around to some liberal universities in the Pacific Northwest and you asked people, why do you think the average Trump voter? Why do you think people want Donald Trump? I hmm. bet you the overwhelming majority of those people have never spoken to a Trump voter and they will say because they're Nazis. Yeah, or because they're racist. To like, yeah. Why they would actually want want right. our inability to adequately phrase the reasons why somebody is a proponent of a particular candidate is a problem in and of itself because right. it means that you don't understand their position. You're only going to enrage the opposition if you are arguing a false narrative for their position. They're going to think that you're just dumb. Because you, guess, you don't get it. And like, what are they even talking about? That's not even my view. The thing that's so 
strange to me is that people have managed to not only create a narrative, but to create a culture in which having those conversations is absolutely forbidden. And for the life of me, I cannot understand who these people think is going to benefit from this. Who do they, how do they think these problems are going to be solved if nobody is talking to each other? Oh, and then one more thing. You talked before about the guilt by association. You know, if there were, a, if there were and I have worked with Christian groups, if there were Christian groups that came out and said, you know what, we got this huge problem in Portland here. We got all this pollution in the stream. We'd like you to join us with your fellow atheists and, you know, let's work to get this plastic out of the ocean. I'd say 100%, 100%, 110%. Let's do it. Let's work. Let's get back to productive politics. Let's work on this. And while we're doing it, let's get to know each other as people. Yeah, and then I'll yeah. do a little SE. Yeah. Well, I'm at it. Um, yeah. yeah, it's disturbing that that seems to be happening at, you know, in an academic setting because people then transition into jobs and careers and build families. And if you're sort of kicking things off with your life in the real world with that set of values, it could be problematic because how are you going to navigate the world if you're not interacting with others who disagree with your map? Have you noticed a difference? My guess is no, but I'm not sure that's why I'm asking. Have you noticed a difference between conversations you've had on college campuses and off college campuses? And the reason I say I think you're going to say no, because off college campuses are still people who have gone to college. So it's not like you're separate mm -hmm. in a separate pool. But have you noticed the difference? The, the short answer is no. And that was a, that was another learning. You know, one of the first questions you asked me, what did I learn? And that was another thing is that uh, whether you're a university student and you're a junior, you know, you're relatively young uh, or you're 60 years old on the trail. Typically, the reasons that people give for these views, they're not justifiable. They haven't thought them out. And um, maybe the older people, it's kind of interesting. It seems like older people, they've had more time to think about their views. So they might be they might be giving a more polished response than you might get from a college student who's just still getting into the world and thinking and forming their views more or maybe more frequently. Um, but ultimately, the justifications are poor, especially on these supernatural claims. Um, younger people do seem to be a little more comfortable being interviewed on camera and that type of thing. I did some interviews at PSU in February this year. I was out there with my camera doing some talks. How did that go? It went fine. I think I even interviewed a security guard, and we we talked about why he didn't want to be on camera. But um, I was recording the audio. I think we talked about guns, you know, because I don't think he had a gun with him. And I remember you talking about that, so I was we had chat about that. Yeah, that's the big issue. I, was I just talking? I do three classes today. I can't remember which one. Was it this class or the other class? Was talking about guns. Uh, I'm also not a fan of debates. Like I, I think debates are largely a waste of time. It's just posturing to your tribe. You're not really solving anything. You, you might reach people who are hearing a unique view against their position and they're in the audience and they're in there. Like a lot of us change our minds about watching debates, but I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it. I don't like debating. I, I don't, I want to reach the person that I'm speaking with in a, in a, in a really powerful way. I do an SE conversation on stage with somebody. Um, there's a video of this guy named David McRaney who sits down with Mark Sargent, who is a prominent flat earther. He came and, into my class. He spoke in my class. Who? Which one? Uh, Mark Sargent. No kidding. Yeah, I didn't know he, that. Yeah, because it's I can bring him in because he doesn't talk about protected classes. So there's no problem to bring him in. He's a fascinating... I was yeah. 
impressed by the responses he gave. And I was blown away by my student questions. Just utterly blown away. Hmm. Was that recorded? Yeah, I guess it uh, has to be, huh? No, oh, was he physically that, in? This is in the before times. Yeah, this is before the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. I got be- that phrase from the Washington Journal. That's <laughs> from a Star Trek episode, by the way. The before times? Hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, hey, so this... We're just getting into that again. You go... Oh, really? Good thing. Good. Yeah. Extra, father, extra credit. Um, do you have, I just, well, I just tweeted out today. I've been watching that Star Trek continues, you know, the original thing was a five year mission, but they canceled it after three seasons. But these, this guy is just, it's just the flavor of Star Trek continues is just phenomenal. Hmm. New season of discovery just started, but I haven't had a chance to watch it. I've been busy fighting a, a large scale ideological war. Anyway, what, uh, what would you like to leave people with here today? We're running out of, we're like three minutes left. What would you like okay. to tell people as they read the book and as they practice with their friends, et cetera? All right, students, you have an incredible opportunity to learn from some of the sharpest minds in this culture war or whatever. You may not agree with what they have to say, but listen to them because they're likely giving their strongest arguments and you should probably be well-versed in what they're saying so that you can counter them with your own questions. And then also maybe try to work this conversational technique that you're watching in the videos or what Pete might be talking about or in his books and try to help us make this a norm in our culture. Like if you're part of a gaming community online, uh, I'm, I'm stealing this is idea from Pete here, but like if you have special interest, uh, you're part of a tribe, whatever it is, it doesn't even matter, archery, and somebody at the archery club says, like, this arrow flies straighter than the other one. That's a wonderful opportunity to use this technique to challenge them respectfully on their claim, where they may learn something about it and say, I was completely mistaken. It's actually this other type of brand that's better. But you can impart that tool set so that when they go home and have conversations with people, you may have taught them a better way of exploring claims. So that's really where we need to get to where... It's not unusual to push back with respectful questions. Like we should probably strive to get to the point where we welcome it, we encourage it. And then ultimately I think you'll start using it on your own views and you'll probably end up being less dogmatic about what you claim to know. Yeah, that's the highest form of this, isn't it? The highest form is is when you impose this on yourself, like the Socratic method is when you're like, you start being honest, truly honest with yourself about what you believe and you're willing to revise your belief based upon reason and evidence. And Mm-hmm. I think that if anything should be made moral, it's not belief in a conclusion. It's the belief that you're the type of person who's willing to change their minds. And exactly, and we live in a culture which is exactly the opposite, you know, a person of conviction. Yeah, translation, a person who doesn't, you know, change their mind on the right. basis of it. We need to make it virtuous to reflect on the views that we hold and be willing to change them at a moment's notice. Yeah, that's and right. And we're at the complete opposite point. It's virtuous to just hold oh. on to that belief as hard as you possibly can, no matter what hits you. Yeah, and you know what? If somebody else changes their mind, that's when, you know, you build a golden bridge. You say, oh, that's great. You know, not, eh, it took you long, you know, freaking moron. You know, it's like, well, how do we create a culture in which we laud people for changing their minds? That's what we need to move toward. And we're in exactly the opposite space. Right. Now, our uh, culture that, 
Yeah, well, you've heard me say yeah. it. And it, and it takes effort. It's a lot easier just to roll your eyes and whatever, leave a nasty comment on Twitter for them, as right. opposed to saying, what you said is really interesting. Do you have a little bit of time to maybe on a one-on-one -on -one explore that with me? You have to invest yeah. time. This, just, this isn't going to yeah. happen overnight. We have to make the effort to make it happen. And I've often found that when that's, there's something else that's going on there when people don't want to do that. And I think a lot of it is that people don't want to invest. People don't want to do the intellectual work to understand something. I think Helen Pluckrose has done more intellectual work to understand things that are just clearly false than anyone I've ever met. Um, oh, anyway, I'd like to thank you for everything you do. Thank you for talking to the class. Absolutely. Modeling great behavior. If I were on the Nobel Committee, you and Daryl Davis would be, would be <laughs> right year one and then year two. You guys would get. I, I think wow. it's an honestly, it's unbelievably salubrious for society for you to be doing this. And uh, I cannot thank you enough. Your inspiration to me. You are to me as well. And I wouldn't have been doing what I'm doing if it wasn't for your book and your bu your other book, too. So thank you so much for um, what well, you know, there was somebody that had a question. Um, they mentioned it in the comment. Do we have time for that, Peter? Or do you have to go? I have to go. I have another class and then I have huh. only a minute to eat. But oh, they can email you. Email me. My, it's my first name, period, last name at gmail.com. You can find me on social media. I'm on I'm even on TikTok. You could probably find me there, too. Okay. Okay, cool. All right, everybody. I'll see you next week. Anthony, thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you all. The Street Epistemology Podcast is a production of Street Epistemology International. You can donate or learn more about this nonprofit organization at streetepistemologyinternational.org. The views, guests, and topics expressed here or not expressed here do not necessarily represent those of the organization. 